This weekend is a very special weekend in the life of River Oaks Community Church. It's when annually we place emphasis on our world missions and outreach. On Friday night, there was a wonderful dinner where missionaries from around the world came and shared stories and updates about how the Lord is at work where they are serving. This podcast features the keynote address from our Sunday morning services with guest speaker Bruce Anderson. He delivers a sermon entitled, The World Needs a Lamb. The scripture reading for the day is Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 27. Revelation chapter 21. The world needs a lamb. In the skeptical spirit of the 19th century humorist Josh Billings, uh, he opined, the, the lion and the lamb may possibly sometimes lie down together, but if you'll notice carefully, when the lion gets up, the lamb is generally missing. In the 20th century, uh, somewhat similarly from Woody Allen, uh, someday the lion is going to lie down with the lamb, but the lamb isn't going to get much sleep. Very recently, from David Brooks, PBS NewsHour, he said uh, about North Korea, I read a joke this week that the lion can lie down with the lamb, but you got to get a new lamb each day. Uh, more seriously and sadly, Emma Goldman, the anarchist, uh, feminist, and uh, atheist, gave up altogether any hope here. She said, some nev- people never seem to learn from experience. <clears throat> no matter how often they had seen the lion devour the lamb, they continued to cling to the hope that the nature of the beast might change. And D.H. Lawrence, English writer, poet, uh, probably fascist, Uh, he's even more absolute when he says, the lion shall never lie down with the lamb, the lion eternally shall devour the lamb, the lion eternally shall, the lamb eternally shall be devoured. The two are separate and never to be confused. Now, I think the world has been and continues to be similarly infected. The innocence, the purity, the gentleness of a lamb just don't seem possible in our minds anymore, often just, uh, it's very rare to see that kind of thing. But throughout the Bible, Jesus is metaphorically both the lion and the lamb, and in fact, in Revelation chapter 5, the, t- the two are right there next to each other in John's vision, which is, is, which is where we see this, this world's history-long need for a lamb, evident in the, the dramatic words of Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> and I saw a Mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And in some sense, this means who can solve the problems of man and unravel the mystery of the destiny of the world? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And indeed, in Revelation chapter 5, as we keep going, we see that it is this lamb who is the only one who is able to open the scroll. And with his blood, to purchase men for God from every tribe, tongue, people, nation. Augustine said of Jesus, he endured death as a lamb, he devoured it as a lion. Now, Revelation was written in a time of persecution, either 69 AD under Nero or 95 under Domitian. And that's important because we, we look at the conditions of these people, knowing that it was a time in which they lived under pressure, pressure of persecution, as well as pagan influences and corrupt teachings. And, uh, you know, this, this land of the churches, the seven churches of Revelation, is now modern-day Turkey. And we have uh, one of our EPC pastors in prison there right now in international news. Interpreting Revelation is difficult, and I'm glad your pastor's done a lot of teaching on it. So if I mess up here, you've got it all straightened already. Um, we're not getting into and don't need to get into all these issues, historicist, preterist, uh, fulfill, you know, fulfillment, futurist, uh, all the millennial views and all that. Uh, it's important as we look at this Revelation 21 to simply know that we're at the end of the book, near the end of the book. The final judgment is happening there in chapter 19. And now we're looking at the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, which is the saints eternally living and dwelling with Jesus Christ. It's both the people and the, the city, you know, in the space in which they occupy, this new Jerusalem. And the key characteristics of this city are in the, the text. Revelation 21, 22-27. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anybody who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I have a very simple rest of my message this morning, really. I observe here a contrast between what the city has and what it does not have. According to verse 22, it does not have a temple. According to verse 23, it does not have a sun or moon. According to verse 27, it does not have anyone or anything unclean. It does have a lamb. Verse 22, no temple in the city because the lamb is its temple. Verse 23, no need of sun or moon to shine in it because the lamb is the lamp, lighting the whole thing up. In verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter the city because the Lamb is its gatekeeper, the keeper of the book of life for entrance through its city gates. These verses address, I think, three specific problems that these pressured believers had in their lives and the consequences of those things, those problems, for their mission in the world. The first problem was the temptation to exchange the sweet intimacy of Jesus 
for something else. This is evident in that John encouraged them with a vision in which the Lamb is the temple. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, in the first century, um, it could be tempting for these these early Christians to just cave in under the pressure of these heavy-duty rabbis and teachers and scribes and, and just go with the, the things of the, of the older form of the religion and to fall back into those trappings. Now, Solomon's temple and all the furnishings and all of the ritual was from the Lord, and it was the start of his people coming into relationship with him. That temple was all about relationship. Now, the problem would be to be stuck there and not to move forward with God. Through all the different covenants, he's moving his people forward in relationship. And in Christ, he's bringing a consummation of those covenants. The the consummated intimacy and relationship between God and his people through Jesus Christ. Old Palmer Robertson has written a wonderful book on these, uh, excuse me, these covenants. And... He, he reminds us that in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and <clears throat> these other Old Testament passages, we read about a heart of flesh uh, that's, that's made in place of a heart of stone, right? We, we read about the law being written in your hearts. We read about that the fear of the Lord shall be upon you. And it's about a transformation that God is ultimately bringing to his people. And Palmer uh, Robertson says, The new covenant therefore boasts a unique feature in its power to transform its participants from within their hearts. Without the Lamb, this internalized, personal, transformative relationship with God would not be possible. I like what John Calvin uh, brings up when he talks about the Lamb. One thing he says, he speaks about the willing obedience of the Lamb's sacrifice. Uh, you know, just to survey what he's writing about. He's, he's looking at the scriptures. No one takes it from me, Jesus said, like a sheep that before its shearer was dumb. He went forth, yeah, thank you, went forth and, uh, and met the soldiers. And before Pilate, he did not defend himself. You see, Jesus didn't just go there because he was being pushed and forced to go to the cross. He went there because he wanted to and decided to go to the cross, to sacrifice himself so that his blood could set us free. And the second thing that Calvin brings out when he talks about the lamb, the substitutionary atonement of the lamb for our sins, satisfying God's wrath against our deserved judgment as sinners. Calvin writes, but when we say that, the gra- that grace was imparted to us by the merit of Christ, we mean this, by his blood we were cleansed, and his death was an expiation for our sins. His blood cleanses us from all sin. This is my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. It follows that God's judgment was satisfied by that price. On this point, John the Baptist's words apply, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no gospel without the Lamb. In fact, the Lamb and his Willing sacrifice, his blood atonement are at the very core of the gospel. So a first application uh, to mission is to keep the purity and sufficiency and confidence in the gospel in our mission. The satisfaction of God's wrath by the blood 
of the Lamb is sufficient and powerful. We were just singing about it. I was bouncing around in the back there. I was so excited. The, the powerful name of Jesus that changed people from the inside. That's what we believe. That's what we believed at one point. But hopefully, today, we still believe it. Right? I didn't just believe it once and got saved. Now I'm good. I believe that power. I believe something happens through Jesus Christ when we proclaim his name and his spirit touches us and his blood forgives us. This is, this is it, the core. But there's something even beyond the intelligence of the gospel, and it's brilliant intelligent and that is that it goes deep into the experience of it in the deep heart now we know this is how it's supposed to work because revelation 14 4 says of the true believers it says it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes you see that the believers are the ones who know what he did for them he died and gave his life for me, and I didn't deserve it. He showed so much love to me then, now, and always. I'm going to run after him with all my heart, and I'll just do whatever he wants me to do. I'll just go wherever he wants me to go. I'll just obey him. Surrender, abandonment, giving oneself. But you know, that relationship that started with the temple but culminated in Jesus Christ goes even further than that. It's not just a relationship of devotion and commitment at a deep, deep level. It is the deepest level because in Revelation 21.2, it speaks of the new Jerusalem prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Or Revelation 21.9, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's us, the church, the believers, the wife of the groom, Jesus I love him. I want him. I want to be close to him. That's the heart of us, his church. There's just something about it. As a pastor for many years, you know, you're standing there and you see her down there getting ready to come down the aisle. This guy over here, normally some macho dude, this, you know, kind of blubbery, you know, shaking. She's back there. Everybody's just going crazy. There's something about it. The beauty, the commitment, the, the, the power of this. And that is how God has chosen to describe the relationship between you and his son, Jesus Christ. Our motivation for mission, yeah, there are needs, desperate needs. Our motivation for mission ultimately is our love for Jesus. We love him so much, we're going to do whatever he says to do. Whatever sacrifice, whatever commitment, whatever it is, we're going to do it. From a willing heart. You know, uh, the other day I was praying and I saw uh, in Genesis 29, 20, this verse, the hummingbirds were buzzing around out there in the back. And, and I saw this verse and it just, just grabbed me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her whatever you're called to carry and do in your service to Jesus Christ seems like as hard as it is, even if it, you're in a Belarusian prison or whatever it is, is like a few days out of the love that we have for Jesus Christ. May that motivate us to do everything he wants. 
The uh, second problem I see for these people was that they must have seemed, it must have seemed like they were powerless and, and unsuccessful in light of this powerful Roman Empire and these oppressors who were putting them down. And that's why I believe that John brings the point that the Lamb is the Lamp. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the lamb is not just some, like a little lamp, but this is like brighter than the sun, shining on all of human history, casting out every form of darkness. Revelation 21 is parallel with Isaiah 60, where he says, rise, shine, your light is come. The glory of God is upon the people, darkness in the world, but the glory is on the church. People are seeing it. They will see it. Nations will come to it. Even kings will come to the brightness of that light. The same thing being said here at the end. In Revelation 21, uh, even that the kings are coming. It's not just the heart inside, but everything that flows out of the heart that's being transformed, and the, the society, the people, the way they live is taking a shape. And at that, the way that they're living is so uh, attractive and convincing and powerful that people are drawn to it, and they want to follow. They want to come and know this Jesus Christ as they see that light. And uh, I know we live here in America, and we got people who are rich, and people who are spoiled, and people who uh, think they can do everything on their own, and we have obstacles in this secularist environment. But this light has been shining, continues to light, and attracts people. We're not the light, but the light reflects off us and draws these people. That's what happened with this small little group of people who must have felt powerless, and they just went along and were doing their thing in the Lord, and they shined, he shined through them, it reflected off of them, and the Roman world was declared Christian in the fourth century. So uh, we can see even today signs of this amazing growth in the world, you know, just in referencing the, the 2017 an, uh, anniversary of the Reformation. There were zero Protestants in 1517, there were 560 million in 2017. And notice that most of these are in Africa and Asia, the new demographical center of the church, where we work, our partnerships, and Sean and me and World Outreach and the others. Uh, 2018 marks the first year Africa is the continent with the most Christians in the world. In the mid-2018, mid right now, Christianity is 33% of the world population, more than any other kind of belief by far. And it has been this way for a long time. Well, yeah, but what about the future? Well, by 2050, the best work we know on this projects Christianity to go from 33% where it is now to 35.3% of the world's population by 2050. See, the, the light of God is shining in the world. People and nations are coming to Christ. It's harder for you to see it here, but hopefully some of these stories, which are a mere reflection of all the stories we could be telling you, uh, uh, show that the, this light is transforming the world. Even kings. You know, I was driving in the car, and the Lord just brought this verse on the way, way here from uh, Proverbs 21.1 to me. The king's heart is a stream in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it wherever he wants. So the Lord is ruling and reigning and doing what he wants among the nations, drawing these people to himself, and nothing is going to stop it. The lamb is the lamp, 
who is lighting us up to such a degree that the nations are coming. And that's encouraging. Yeah, it was encouraging to them, encouraging to us. And then just this last point, very simple, and I'm done. The third spiritual problem for these New Testament believers, I believe, uh, in their pressure they had, was to be tempted to feel bitter and angry at their persecutors and at the, this culture around them, and to get into this bickering and angry spirit. And uh, maybe this can speak to us these days in our current environment. And I believe that's why uh, John pointed out that the lamb is also this, this gatekeeper. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life. Revelation 22:14 says, only those who have washed robes that have been made white will enter this city. The, the book of Revelation really closes with the themes of judgment and mercy. Almost like what you read in the newspapers. Judgment and mercy. And there are two feasts in Revelation 19. Not just one. No, one is the marriage feast of the Lamb. We're all going to be at that feast, because the blood of Jesus has given us an entrance to go through those gates, and we're going to be looking like we're sinless, even though we're not, because Jesus took that from us, and we get to be there. Uh, but there's also the feast of the birds of prey that feast on the flesh of the evil ones and the evil structures, the captains, the kings, and the officers who consistently and persistently rebelled against the Lord. And there's a feast of that type going on, of heavy, heavy judgment. Now, we don't like to talk about these things, but it's, it's important to talk about them. John's talking about them so that we can see how things are actually going to go. Now, the truth is that we're the bride only because the groom chose us, and so that should engender for us humility in all of our relationships. And not, you know, condemnation and judgment toward other people. Second, some of these people who are meant to be in that marriage supper with us are, are still outside. But God's calling them in. There's still time. There's still time for them. Maybe they don't have to be among the, the heavy judgment. Maybe some of those people won't have to go there. They can come with us. There's still time, but we have to take some action. So we're doing as God's people in this earth. So they can join us with it. They're looking in and they're saying, I wish I could be in there. Even when you're trying to drive by your church, some of them are saying, I wish I could be in there. I'm not sure how to get in here, but, but God help us, especially those that are way remote, Muslims and people far unreached to come. And, uh, and third, some evildoers that just seem to never get any judgment, they, they get by with murder and genocide and evil and wicked things in this world, and people can't get over it, 
They will be judged. And, you know, everybody's crying, justice, justice, we need justice. Well, I'll tell you, perfect justice is on the way. Every single deed, everything wrong will be made right. More than we know and maybe are even care to be able to comprehend. And so we can release it. We can release that to the Lord who will do all things the way they should be done. Ephesians 4, 31, 32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The posture and attitude of mission is humility, mercy, forgiveness. Because the church knows it was nothing until Jesus chose to make her his own. In our mission to the world, we can be merciful because we've received mercy. The Lamb is the temple, and our motivation for mission is love for the Lamb. That's what motivates us. The Lamb is the lamp, and success in our mission is guaranteed because the reflection of Jesus will irresistibly draw people and nations to him. And the Lamb is the gatekeeper. The attitude of mission is mercy and forgiveness. In the Lamb, the Lord has given us mission that is devotional, hopeful, and merciful. We honor you, Lamb of God, who has come and by your blood saved the world. We bless your name. You're the one that we hold high. It's to you that we devote ourselves. It is in you that we find our hope. And it is you, Lord, who show us the path of mercy that is so desperately needed in our world. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.